a little bit of a bridge is uh, last week we did something unique in that Vision Sunday is normally a time where we begin to roll out new plans. We get excited. We say this is where we're headed as a church this year. We recruit you to those things. And this of all years just felt like a year we're not acknowledging how we were coming into this year and the distinctiveness of where we're at personally and corporately. It just felt like moving too quickly into what's next. And so we began to pause and look over our shoulders and consider where we're at by really leaning into the reality and need for seasons like this for overall reconnection, reconnection with ourselves, kind of checking in with ourselves, reconnection with God. Times like these can do enormous damage to our spiritual lives, to our understanding of who God is. There's a sense in which times like these, your faith doesn't quite work the way that it once did. So checking and then reconnecting with one another. And so we walked through some things relevant to that last week. And just gauging response to that, it seemed like the stuff around forgiveness, the need to forgive, the need to seek forgiveness from one another, which has been this ongoing need of the people of God literally from the beginning of the founding of the church, is that there's always this need for the people of God to be exceptionally immersed in a culture of forgiveness, that uh, especially in times like we've been through, and you see this throughout the New Testament, there is this call to say, be gentle-hearted, bear with one another, forgive each other. If you know someone has an offense against you, go to that person and seek that out. And I just wanted to say, uh, as, as one of your pastors, um, that uh, it was powerful to see the response to that and to hear from many of you that said, hey, I, I needed that encouragement to do that, but I also needed that, that sort of gentle challenge to do that. And so in light of that, I felt like there's, there's kind of one other main shared community practice that I think might be an important one to put before us this morning that is also very similarly in the vein of how, how do you move forward in times of great difficulty. And so what I want to talk about this morning, I call this Vision Sunday Part 2, is, is I want to talk about what it means to, to grieve our losses well. That's where we're headed this morning in the main time of teaching. How, how do we take seriously the damage, the disappointment, the, um, the doubt that many of us have experienced? What do, you, what do you do? Where do you go with that stuff? Okay, so that's, that's where we're ultimately headed. I want to say that before doing one more thing on the announcement side, just so you knew that I wasn't going to do a half hour of announcements. Um, and so, uh, so that's where we're headed, but, but here's what we have to do today, is last week we rolled out this, um, our strategic priorities for the year, and the big one, the big thing that we're doing is this idea of deepening discipleship. And uh, for many of you, you'll be familiar with this pie chart. Over the last three years, six semesters over three years, we have been working through this church-wide discipleship focus. And start, so starting all the way back in fall of 2018, which feels like, you know, 15 years ago, back in the fall of 18, we launched this church-wide discipleship course, worked through these six different topics of what it means to be human, what it means to be a created being, and how Jesus speaks into and needs to be the center of all of those areas of life. And so we built out this curriculum. We finished that this last spring. Here's where we're headed next with this whole discipleship focus. Is uh, what we have done is over this summer, Rachel and myself with our director, Mark Stacio, uh, have shot, uh, have shot, that's a weird way to put it, have filmed, um, that's a very dramatic uh, verb with no uh, context to it. Uh, we filmed that content and condensed it down such that what were eight weeks of content became four sessions of content. And we're calling what we've done for the last three years our core curriculum. If you've been in an academic setting, you know the idea of core curriculum. If you've been in a university setting, this is kind of your 101s, the stuff intro to, right, all of these various kinds of areas. And so in making those four sessions, what that allows us to do is it allows those of you who haven't been able to take those various uh, topics back when we did the church-wide discipleship, it allows you to take two of those in one semester, okay? Because our semesters kind of run eight weeks in, in discipleship 
of course. So you can take two of those. And the idea is that all of us at some point will fill out our pie chart. If you've ever played Trivial Pursuit, remember that whole deal where you need to fill up your Trivial Pursuit pie and then you know once it's full you go to the end and then that's how you win the game. That's what we want to do. We want to fill up your little discipleship pie through that core curriculum. The question becomes, okay, what about when I'm done with the core curriculum, which is many of you. Um, in fact, we had you sort of self-report last week, and it was what? What was the number? Yeah, like 36, probably, you know, probably more than that after we have you do this again today. Um, but 40, 50 of you have been through all of that, and so what we're doing now is we're launching these 201s. And so this is building off the content in the 101s, those very same topics, but just going deeper. We're doing this because we are very aware, and really were from the beginning, that the downside of the church-wide, everybody in a room, you know, there were nights where there'd be 150 people in this room taking a course, what that lacked was, one, a real relational component to it, where you were building relationship with people, getting that kind of proximity and familiarity with each other, and then also the opportunity to really handle this stuff on your own, to have long opportunities um, or extended opportunities to handle the scriptures yourselves, handle the material yourselves, go deep when someone shares something and have the space to really go into it. And so that's how we're building out these 201s. As part of this whole project, uh, this transition, this deepening of discipleship from the church-wide model to this model, we have been uh, working alongside of what we call the teacher cohort that has now become our discipleship team. And so those 101s will be facilitated by myself uh, Rachel and then Kimberly Porter. The 201s, the two that we're offering this semester are Emotional Discipleship 201, which will be led by Tyler Stowell, who's in the back there, and then Liz Ann Lynn. And then we're also offering Spiritual Discipleship 201, which will be led by Jalen Baker and Sarah McLean up here. And so we are very excited about this. We're very excited to provide those smaller group environments that many of you desire all of this takes uh, some serious logistical heft to figure out where everybody belongs. And so what I am going to ask you to do today is if you did not do this last week, hear me now, if you did this last week, you can just chill. You have like four minutes, you know? Check your fantasy football lineup for all I care, right? Like you don't have to do this again. In fact, it might not be helpful if you did it again unless you made some major mistake. But if you did not do this last week, we want you to go to our website, jacobswellnj.org, we want you to click on the banner that looks like this, okay? When you click on that banner, there will be a form. We are asking literally everyone to fill this out because what we offer is very much dependent. Me and Rachel and Morgan this week, we felt like we were in a beautiful mind, like writing equations, you know, on the whiteboard. Like, okay, if this many people need this and this many people, so we need this data. Like, this is really important data for us to have. We won't do this every semester, I don't think, because once we have this data, we can kind of run with it. But we really, really, really need uh, you to do this. What you'll do is you'll self-report which of the 101s, how many of the last six semesters over the last three years, how many of those have you done? And we just ask you to fill those in. If you've done none of them, just leave that, just leave that blank. But that's information that we really need to know. There's also uh, opportunity on there to let us know, yes, I'm in. These things are going to be 8 o'clock to 9.30 on Wednesday nights. We'll offer an in-person and uh, an online, a, a Zoom option for all of these. And so just let us know your preference. That also helps us plan these things out. And then what's the one other thing on there? What am I yeah, yeah, that, that you're actually committing to do this. That's why I was saying that, that you're actually committing to do this, your preference uh, in person or over Zoom. I can tell you that there's many of you that need to do this because we said you absolutely have to do this. We need everyone to do this. And we had, you know, 180 people total in our gathering, which is crazy, last week. Um, and we had 80 of you fill it out. <laughs> and so, so some of you do need to do this. Um, if you're new, if you know that you're not going to be around, that's totally fine. You don't, you don't have to do this. But I'm going to now stop talking and give you three minutes to go ahead and uh, fill this out. Please, please, please help us and do this. Ready, go.
Let me inter interrupt you real quick. One of the things that we, that we, <laughs> I don't know who the we would be, it, I, failed to communicate last week was um, we will not be able to provide childcare if you are doing in-person for a discipleship course. Again, that shouldn't be prohibitive to you taking it because you can, um, you can do it virtually, but just with all of the moving parts and not being able quite to tell who's here and COVID and all that stuff, we will not be providing childcare. I did need to, to mention that, which might change your preference in person or virtual. Uh, if you need to finish up, that's fine, but uh, let's keep moving here. Just last thing in terms of overall where we're headed as a church. Just wanted to mention two things just for clarity's sake. Um, again, our main focus community-wise are going to be these community meals that we're doing starting on the third every other month, first Sunday of the month. We'll do those. We'll all be together. In the months where we're not doing a community meal, uh, we'll provide other Context, men's events, women's events, uh, times that we're all invited to, movie nights, th these are the kind of things we're thinking through. Again, other opportunities to all be together. We really feel like the overall disconnectedness of our community uh, is kind of the most important thing to address this year, uh, rather than what we have done always in the history of our church, which is kind of more localized community. And so uh, I don't think that I said this maybe as clearly as, as I could have, but we, we will not be doing community care groups this year. Uh, so there will not be those, it, it won't be like you do a community meal and then the next week uh, you, you have a CCG meal. The community piece, we're really gonna try and do church-wide and be together a lot, which means that we really feel like we need to clear the decks. And so I don't know, and this is genuine, I don't know what we will do with community care groups moving forward. We really feel like this is the right move for this season of our church. And so are CCGs gone forever? I don't know. Are they dormant? I don't know. I would lean probably towards the latter, like they're dormant, and we'll probably go back to that kind of model, something like that. But for now, uh, that's really our focus on community. And then the care piece, this is one of the things that's come out of COVID that we really that we really feel like uh, is one of those small wins uh, from an otherwise difficult time is the centralized care team that began to function in the midst of COVID through the care form, through when, when a need is made aware of, uh, this, this team is able to really move on that. That's something that we're gonna continue building into. Um, and so the important thing there is bridging the gap between what the needs are and actually making us aware of those needs. And, and that's what that team is really trying to think through and be creative about. You can always help us by making known uh, what's going on with you. Thank you to the many who have courageously continued to reach out saying, especially after the storm, here's my needs, here's what's going on, here's the update, you know, insurance adjuster just got back to us, here's, here's what's going on. We need that kind of, we need that kind of initiative, uh, at least right now, to know what those needs are. You can always, always, always email elders at jacobswellnj.org. Let us know what those needs are. Um, and then either we'll respond to that or work with the care team to make sure that you're well taken care of. And then the one other thing on the bottom there are opportunities to serve, which we're already seeing uh, in this season post-hurricane. Thank you to the many uh, who have already put literal hands, who have gotten their hands dirty on behalf of others in the community. 
Here are just some important dates. You can put that back up, Mike. Uh, here are some important dates. wanted you to be able to jot that down. Discipleship course launches not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. So we're now a week and a half out, 10 days out from the launch of Discipleship Course. Those will take place on Wednesdays at 8, either here or virtually. Uh, the one other thing that I did want to say is if you are one of those people who has completed all six over the last three years, you self-reported that, we know that, what you will get this week is you will get an email saying, here are the two 201s that are being offered. Go ahead and, and we'll give you information about what those are, give you a little course description kind of thing, and then you can choose which one you want, and then you'll hear from your leaders, um, and they'll get you all set up and ready to go by next Wednesday. So you'll hear from us in the next couple days if you're one of those who said, yeah, I've done all six. Um, if, if you're someone who reported otherwise that you need a couple of those, we'll do a similar thing this week in saying, hey, here's, uh, we're going to assign you those because uh, we kind of have to group people together. And so we will say, hey, you're going to be whatever. You're going to be with Pastor Scott for... Uh, emotional one-on-one, and then you'll be with Rachel for whatever, um, whatever we're doing. Uh, we don't know yet. And so, uh, but you will have community. So if you feel like, wait, what am I doing as of September 29th, uh, that information will come to you this week. So everything else on there is pretty self-explanatory. With that, pretty long intro. See why I told you that we would actually do something this morning? Um, let's get into the teaching. Grieving our losses. This is a... I don't even know what to call this, because these four aren't necessarily sequential steps, though they do go in some kind of order. This is largely adapted from a book that we read in our leader cohort called uh, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, and that itself is from the ministry of Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, who themselves have contributed a lot to our discipleship course. And so this is, this is probably familiar to many of you. A little bit of it is, is modified to just our church and how we've learned to do this. But this is actually, these four movements are things that have served me personally really well in times of loss, in times of significant change, in um, when I'm kind of realizing that maybe I'm not processing something that I need to process. These four movements have been enormously helpful to me. And they've been helpful to our community. This is something that we've worked through literally as a staff when we go through significant change. It's something that we've worked through as elders. And so this is one of the reasons why I just felt compelled to put this in front of us is this is kind of battle-tested uh, in our community and feel like this is one of those shared practices that, that I would just love to see really, uh, really stick in our community and be something that we can all move toward together, that we can push each other towards uh, when things are difficult. But let me just set up what I'm talking about here is, right, we have been through an enormously hard season. Uh, that has become cliche. It's no less true just because it's a cliche. There is an incredible amount of weight that every single one of us has, has carried for the last 18 months. And that weight, in many ways, is very much individualized to each of us, given where we're at, right? Like the the students who are here, your experience has had a different kind of weight than, you know, whatever, than a school teacher's, than a parent who's home, like, and yet there's a sharedness to that. And that's what in some ways makes this time so unique. It, it, it's what makes me feel like we need to talk about this as a church, put this in front of us. Discipleship courses will engage this stuff because, yes, it's unique to us, but it's shared. We have all um, had a, right, it's why we sing a song like, Oh, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, is because we all sing that, and this is one of those times where we can be pretty sure all of us resonate to that in some kind of a way. And yet, what very few of us are skilled at all at doing is rightly, in a distinctly Christian way, taking our Christian identity and saying, this is how we process this kind of hurt, pain, damage, loss, confusion, change in life. And that's where I think that, that these movements um, are just so helpful as someone who myself has not, is not naturally inclined to process grief. Right? Like there are a pastor in, in New York City, in Queens, Pastor Rich Velotis, who comes from that same church as the Scazzaros. He actually took over for Pete Scazzaro in the lead pastor role there. He says, there's four things that really contribute to us uh, not being good at this. One is just our general cultural 
moment, uh, which we are not a culture that's very good at processing grief and loss coming alongside people who are brokenhearted, knowing what to do with that kind of pain. We also bring our own culture in terms of our ethnic background. I was just talking to a friend who's going through some grief and loss, and uh, he comes from an Irish background. He said, yeah, there's this comedian who does a bit, who says, yeah, the Irish, what we tend to do is that we take really hard things, we take pain, we take suffering, we take loss, and we stuff it way, 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 way down, and then one day, we die, right? Like, there are also kind of ethnic movements um, or, or ethnic uh, distinctives that cause us to either handle or mishandle grief. There's also the church. Right? Like the church has not always made space for those who are hurting and suffering. The church tends to be a place where those who are weary and suffering walk into it and don't necessarily feel like they are the primary audience for what goes on in a gathering like this. This is something that has been said of our church. To walk in here and to only hear happy, clappy, upbeat songs when you yourself are in pain and suffering can beg the question, is this the place where I am seeing where my pain is taken Suffer, uh, taken seriously, right? And so this is something that we've tried to get better at, to realize uh, that there is a kind of optimism, a kind of simple optimism, that when not balanced with naming the reality of suffering and the difficulty of this world, can actually make people feel excluded from the community itself. Because that optimism that we tend towards is often more the inheritance of, of our Western American culture than it is of a distinctly biblical view of the world and of pain and of suffering. The songbook of God's people, the Psalms, this huge uh, uh, collection of, of prayers. Would you grab those for me, Arthur? Um, this huge collection of prayers, right? Like it's, it, we've said this in some, thank you so much. I appreciate that. We have said so many times that this, this songbook of the people of God in the Old Testament, that over half of these songs are not happy, clappy, praise the Lord, rejoice, rejoice, no matter what, rejoice. They're actually complaints. They're laments. They're coming from places where the psalmist is wondering, God, do you see me in this place? God, do you feel the pain that I feel? God, my simple faith isn't working in the context of this particular pain that I'm experiencing. That's our inheritance. That's a distinctly Christian engagement with the world. And yet so often we think that we're doing something wrong if we're not able to put on a happy face when we walk into a gathering of God's people. There's also our families of origins. I don't know how your family handled grief. I know how mine did, right? I'm not trying to put my family on blast, right? But we, are, we tend toward optimism. We tend to say, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be, we'll push through. Oh, everything will be all right. Oh, you're not, right? Like, what do we say to a kid who falls off their bike and is crying? So many of us. We say, oh, it's okay. Oh, you're not hurt. Right? Why do we have that instinct, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you're not hurt. Don't cry. Why do we have that instinct? So often it's because we don't know what to do with the real pain and suffering. In a, in a moment as small as that, in a moment as big as our cultural moment, and in a moment as personal as what some of us have walked through in this time, we also have our own proclivities and personalities that tend one way or another, that tend to either stay in grief and suffering for too long. Right? Like that's part of what we'll talk about. You got to talk about that, right? Like a tendency to wallow in that. And some of us who never want to go there and think that unprocessed hurt and pain and difficulty, won't do what it inevitably does, which it leaks out. It leaks out in sarcasm, it leaks out in passive aggressivism, it leaks out in anger, it leaks, leaks out in lashing out at other people. And we go, where did that come from? And so often the answer is, there is unprocessed loss that that is coming from. There is disappointment that has never been named and dealt with that that is coming from. Now look, here's what I wanna say is I am not a professional counselor, and I cannot counsel 120 people from the stage, right? And so what I don't want to do is make you feel like whatever your specific situation is, 100% of what I'm going to say this morning applies to it. But like, can I make that disclaimer and say that these are some general truths that I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to apply where it needs to apply? There are, like, this is what makes grief so hard, is that because our grief is often so specific and nuanced and needs deeper engagement. You don't need one sermon to process some of the stuff that, that y'all are carrying from childhoods and from, 
for broken relationships, right? Like this, this isn't, but what the church so often does is therefore we say, we're not going to talk about it because it's just too hard and complicated. Like I feel like that's the wrong movement, especially in a season like this, where I know like 100% of us or so have been through enormous, at least change, if not loss, suffering, pain, anxiety, fear in this time. And so please hear this with all the pastoral nuance that I'm not able to provide. Hear this disclaimer as saying, you probably need to take some of this and actually work it out in community with others rather than saying, cool, I heard a 35-minute talk on grief. I can now do this on my own. Having said all that, um, we, we live in a really interesting, though, cultural moment where emotional health has started to be taken seriously, right? Like the patron saint of America is Brene Brown, and a lot of people are listening to her stuff and beginning to realize, like, oh, yeah, I got, I got some stuff. I actually, uh, I say this all the time. I'm, I, I'm realizing when I say stuff like this, in, in teaching is I might be obnoxious to watch TV with because there are these certain things that I always turn to Sarah and I'm like, oh, they're doing the thing. Again, she's like, can you just watch a show and enjoy it and not overanalyze it? But here's one of my working theories about entertainment in America in 2021 is for the last couple of years, I've noticed this shift that every single show that I ever watched growing up, um, that's very hot take. Most of the shows that I watched growing up, at the end of the day, if you ask, what is the main theme and topic of this show? You know what the answer would be? Romantic love, right? Like Dawson's Creek and Beverly Hills 90210 and whatever else, right? Like whatever friends, right? Like the ultimate thing going on in those shows was like, who's, who's going to end up with who? Does he know that she, right? Like that. Over the last couple of years, I've noticed this massive shift that the prevailing theme of kind of popular entertainment in America, do you know what it tends to be? If you've kind of, have I seen it? I'm not the only one who thinks this, by the way. I've read, read this. It's actually complicated grief. It's people who have been through some kind of enormous loss, and they're working it out in unhealthy ways. And so often the movie, the show, is them coming to terms with that, realizing that that's what's going on, and then finding a better way to process it. Let me throw out a few examples. Ted Lasso. Anybody watch Ted Lasso? Right? Ted Lasso's processing some stuff. Have you noticed that, right? Like they brought in the counselor this season. She's kind of pushing him in ways. We all think of Ted Lasso as like the ideal person, right? Like he was this messianic figure. Or maybe actually some of that happiness is a little fake and there's more going on under the surface of old Ted Lasso than we realize, right? Like, there you go. There's my takedown of Ted Lasso. WandaVision. That show was about grief. The Crown, that show's about grief if you look at it. Frozen, fro fro. It's about complicated grief, 100%. Inside, I think Inside Out started this whole thing. If we had to blame someone, and it's a good blaming, I think Inside Out started. Watch shows, tell me what you think, look, look deeper, um, and you'll realize like, oh, yeah, like that's what's going on. Uh, in classic literature, if you need one, remember Miss Havisham? How many of you know what book Miss Havisham is from? Dean, what's Miss Havisham from? What book? Great Expectations, 100 points for Dean. Uh, Miss Havisham was this figure in Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, and she, was, uh, she lived in this kind of broken down mansion. She wore this yellowed uh, wedding dress because she had been jilted at the altar, and she decided, my life Will, can never move forward from this difficult moment. She's the living embodiment of unprocessed grief. More modern, anybody see Manchester by the Sea, the most depressing movie made in the last 15 years, with Casey Affleck, right? Like that whole movie is about, he says in that movie, he says, I'm not sure that I can kick this particular tragedy that he has been through. This is out there in culture. It's being named, and yet I think, as is so often the case, in, in kind of popular entertainment. The solutions are, are far too simple. The solutions are far too tied up. But there is a distinctly Christian way. Our culture is naming a problem that I think Christianity has the most unique resources to actually come alongside of a name. And this is one of the reasons why in an otherwise moment where we can freak out and say the world is against us and culture is coming from us, it's like, no, the culture is still asking human questions and we are still the ones with the ultimate human who had the only solution to the deepest human questions. Let's not freak out. Let's actually get busy living this stuff, embodying this stuff, and then showing the world, yeah, we can do that stuff better than Marvel can, right? I've been through my own stuff this year, if I can be vulnerable with you for a second. Um, I headed into literally the fall of last year 
with the enormous blessing of having all four of my grandparents, my grandparents, still alive. Uh, three of them died within two and a half months of each other. For a long time, I was like, oh, that's fine. They were old. That's fine. My grandma, who I was particularly close with, that's fine. And then found about a month and a half after all that happened, I was just, just melted on the floor because I was trying to push through it, trying to scrape it under the rug and realize, okay, <laughs> I need to talk about this. I need to work this through. Our very, very uh, closest neighborhood friends, the friends that we would walk our kids to school with every day, uh, their kids were our kids, best friends in class together, all that stuff because of job situations and things that happened, they moved away in this. Uh, anyway, had that? I won't say show of hands, right? I've had a little of that this year, people moving away. We're still processing that because <laughs> that one pops up like every day when we go to pick up our kids. I'm like, dang, pikes aren't here. That stinks. We've needed to process. We talk a lot about that with our kids. We thought our kids were fine, right? Kids are resilient. Kids will push through. And then one day, oh, he's not in here, so I can say these kind of things. Um, don't tell him I told you this. But one of my kids, I'll say it that way, make it mysterious. Ask him, hey, how you doing with, with our neighbors leaving? And he couldn't even get words out. He was like, oh, you're not okay. Because grief and loss is a real thing. Right, like uh, I'm not saying this to be whatever, like a, a whiny pastor, but enduring the, the kind of criticism and the misunderstanding of this last year and a half is like nothing I have ever carried in my life. I've had to process that. Thank God for good men who have allowed me to process that with them, to name the losses in that, to name the ways that that gets at some of my identity, right? Like the bad stuff that's in that, but also the okay stuff to say, yeah, that's really hard. That's okay, right? You have your own version. I just put that out to say, you're probably going, well, I have, well, I, yeah, that's the point. That's why we're talking about this, right? Like we all have our own stuff and I won't keep going, but I'll just say, I am the kind of person I realize by nature that comes off um, because I want to come off this way, I want to come off like I have it all together and everything's fine, right? That's a problem. Um, when when my, the one whose image I'm being conformed to, Jesus, was not someone who had it all together all the time, right? There was a brokenness about him that not only connected him to his own stuff, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your will be done, not my will, but also connected him to the pain and suffering of, 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 of others actually allowed him to be empathetic actually allowed him to walk in other people's kingdom because he said, I know what pain is. I know what hurt is, disappointment is. I know what it is to be misunderstood, right? And sometimes when we want to present, preaching myself, we want to present this image of, oh, I'm fine. I got it all together. I could take anything. One, we're not being genuine about ourselves. Two, we're disconnecting ourselves and, and, and unavailing ourselves to the pain and suffering of others. First thing we got to do is we got to name this stuff. Got to acknowledge loss as a kind of death. That might sound extreme, but I think real health in this area takes seriously, doesn't minimize pain, but takes it utterly seriously, and says even in the smallest kinds of changes in life, there is a kind of death that occurs, right? All the way up into actual physical death and loss. Listen to uh, the most famous sufferer other than Jesus in the scriptures, Job. This is like in the Bible. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be dark. When you start hating your birthday, you know you're in some deep stuff, right? Like, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison the terrors of God are arrayed against me. This is what faith sounds like. This is, this is like, gets the combination of God by showing up in Holy Scripture. And so one of the reminders in acknowledging these things as actual little deaths in our life is to say, God can handle this stuff. God handled actual, literal, physical death. Right? Like he can handle the small and the enormous deaths in our life. And he wants to, right? Cast all your cares, your burdens upon him. But in order to cast something, you got to hold it first. In order to actually be able to engage something, you have to name it for what it is. 
So one of the best things that you can, right? Like this stuff so often hides in, uh, what's, what's the language? Surface emotion, is that the language, right? That they use something like that, right? Like, like anger and sadness and anxiety and fear, these are surface emotions and under them is something driving them. And so often what's under them is we are just not naming what's actually happening in our lives. We're actually not naming just how much we are feeling the loss of something, just how much we are feeling the confusion of something. Right? This isn't all of what good, godly, healthy, Jesus-centered grief looks like, but it's the beginning of it. And some of us need to take that step with certain things in our lives. The next movement in this, I guess I'll call it, is this beautiful phrase, waiting in the confusing in-between. This concept is basically that grief, this is, this is even why I don't believe that there's necessarily a progression here because grief uh, and any psychologist, anyone who studied this would say, has a cyclical nature to it. Right? Like grief comes and goes. Some of you who have lost, you've lost a parent, uh, you've lost a child, and I don't say that lightheartedly, uh, but you would bear witness to the fact that it's not like, oh, I began my grief and then it was over or something. Right? Like there, there is this cyclical nature to it. But one of the realities about grief is that often it lingers. One of the realities of pain, of change, of enormous change in our lives is the consequences of it. The effect of it lingers for longer than we'd like it to. And what we want to do in that case is either rush past it or find shortcuts out of it. So often what we do with this unprocessed stuff in our lives, what we often do in the midst of change and, and the inner tumult that that creates is that we try and... We try and numb it, and this is so often where various kinds of intense and, and more, I guess what you could call minor addictions come from, is there stuff going on that we feel needs to be numbed, we run and we escape from it, we self-isolate in the midst of this kind of pain and damage, and we move ourselves out of community. One of the most commonly spoken, you can call it commands, though often the psalmist is actually talking to themselves. In the psalm, one of the most repeated phrases in the psalms is, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. My, my favorite, uh, growing up, I grew up in church and I had a Bible cover, because if you're cool, you have a Bible cover obviously, and it had a giant eagle on it, and any of you who grew up in church probably know what verse was on there. Isaiah 40, 31, baby. Oh, yeah. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with things like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the church kid in me. But, but it's only, it was only when we were actually preaching through Isaiah that the full weight of that verse, that's like a nice verse. It's like a it, it has an eagle in it. I mean, it's how, how cool is that, right? Um, and it sounds like, like, oh, you can run really fast, right? Like, I was an athletic kid, so I was like, sick, you know? Like, I can do all things through Christ's strength with me, including, like, you know, you know, hit a free throw or whatever. Like, that's not what all these verses are about, right? Like, what weight on the Lord actually there means is it's being spoken to a people who are in exile. And what the prophet there is saying is he's saying, if you will, what does weight on the Lord mean? What weight on the Lord means more often than not biblically is remain faithful in the midst of a season where you feel like you have every reason, every excuse not to be faithful to God. In a season like we have been through, there is an, it, it, a loud voice in our, set, in our head that says, gosh, you at least deserve this. And so often what our foolish flesh tells us we deserve is the exact opposite of what God would call us to in seasons like this. And so we find ourselves falling back into old patterns that we thought were long since gone because we're not waiting on the Lord. And look, that waiting isn't a passive, just sit around for as long as you want. That waiting is gritty, really hard, maybe the hardest kind of faithfulness that is called for. That's why it's said again and again. That's why psalm after psalm after psalm says, look, at the end of the day, there is a kind of resilient patience that is required of the follower of Jesus, of the person of God, 
Because our flesh will always tell us, well, you're going through this. Therefore, maybe God isn't good. Maybe he is withholding something from you. So you need to go and get it so that you can see your way through this. And the Lord says, no, wait on me. Turn to me. Come to me. Go back to the fundamentals. Pray and serve and move toward community rather than away from community. Because all of this stuff, yes, what it will do is it will sate that inner turmoil for a moment and then actually sink you even deeper into the pain that you're experiencing. Whereas my thing is going to require a little bit of energy, a little bit of courage, a little bit of at pushing against the inertia that all of this pain has created. And yet on the other side of it, just like inertia, the idea of inertia is once you push past it, there's actually momentum that builds up. This is what we're calling for. Right now is a time where, as your pastor, I'm saying, wait on the Lord, Jacob's well. Show, and, and what that looks like is show up. Just show up to push against the urge to say, Ugh, of all times, I don't want to stay after the gathering. I'm already exhausted. I had a long weekend already. No, push past that inertia. So many of you, and particularly the people, and I'm, I'm not saying this against anyone who left, but it was an interesting observation that so many of you who stayed latest last week felt the need to come to me and say, this was really good for me. This was good for my soul to be here. Right? So waiting on the Lord, as simple as it is, means in this time. And so you acknowledge that there's this waiting. You acknowledge that it's confusing in the in-between. You acknowledge that you wish that it was this happened and then I was out of it and I looked back and I saw the beautiful lesson that was in it. Very little pain and grief and suffering in our lives has anything remotely like that kind of nice tied up bow to it. Third movement. Linking loss to our maturity in Christ, right? This is where, this is where we get distinctly Christian about these things. What I can't preach on today, and probably never will, because there's no you know, 40-minute explanation of this, is uh, just the reality that there is pain and suffering in a world that God himself created and is sovereign over. How do you, how do you wrestle with that? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, again, I won't address that today. Here's what we can say as Christians, though, is we can say what Paul says in Romans 8. And let me just say at the front end here, I, I truly believe this is the most misunderstood text in the entire Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you go through anything hard and you love God, it's going to work out and just be amazing. Right? Like that's how... That's how this text has been approached. And um, there are probably, I don't know, um, thousands of examples any of us could collectively tell of where this just wasn't the case, right? Like what I would call this when I was uh, working with students going through hard things is uh, like the false gospel of silver linings. Like what this means is... Um, you know, you go through, I remember talking about this with a student who went through this uh, horrible injury, he was an athlete, and not just did it take his sport away from him, but uh, there was a chance, you know, he wouldn't be able to walk and all that stuff. And the false gospel of silver lining says, yeah, but maybe you'll meet your future wife, you know, as your physical therapist. And while that's funny, right, like that is so devastatingly um, hollow in what it promises, because it means the best that you can do is some far lesser good that God is asking you to pay this infinite cost for, right? Like this horrible, brutal cost, but look at the little goody that he threw at you, which says that God is actually a God who likes to uh, sort of impoverish his people, ask for a high cost, and then give you a little bit back. You can't read verse 28 without also reading verse 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That, okay. What is the good? Is the good a nice middle class American life? Because that's what a lot of us expect. If I go through hard stuff, I'm going to have a really nice house one day. No. What is God's purpose in our lives? Is God's purpose comfort and security for the rest of our lives? 
financial security, physical security, uh, relational harmony in all things, right? Like, is that God's greatest purpose in our life? I can tell you right now, no, that would fly in the face of the entire New Testament. So what is it? I'm telling you it comes quick. It's the next verse. For, therefore, for, it's linking these two verses, for, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I don't know all of the why behind suffering. I know God's 100% commitment to us in the midst of it, which what this is saying is that anything that you go through in your life, God is sovereignly capable of using that for his purposes and for his definition of good, which is to conform you to the image of his son. That his purpose, 100%, I don't know if you're gonna meet your future spouse. I don't know if you're ever gonna get out of this suffering. I don't know if you'll ever recover from it. What I do know is if you will wait on the Lord, he will use it for the thing that he says is of absolute priceless value in your life is that you would become more like Jesus and working off of what we talked about in Hebrews, that he will use it to get you to the end, to get you to promised land, to see you through your journey. It will add to your perseverance and resilience such that you show up at the end. That's his good. That's his purpose. And Jacob, well, I am telling you, I don't know if we're out of COVID yet. I don't know if we'll be able to meet in person forever and always. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. What I do know is if we do not find Jesus' work, Jesus' hand, and say, Jesus, I want to wait on you. What are you trying to produce in me and through me in this? How are you conforming me to the image of your son, who, oh, by the way, was a man of sorrows, who, oh, by the way, was misunderstood, who, oh, by the way, went through pain, who, oh, by the way, was connected to the suffering of this world by his own experience and by his empathy for others. How are you trying to bring that out in me? What are you trying to break down in me? What are you gonna, how are you going to use this to reveal things in me that need to go? How are you going to deal with some old patterns that I'm prone to fall into once and for all by bringing them smack in my face here and now such that I can have complete repentance, turn fully to you, and maybe see victory in these areas of my life? That's his good. That's his purpose, Jacob Swell. And that's distinct from a world that just says what process grief looks like is you're happy again. I don't even know if God wants you happy right now. Even that unto itself is a false gospel that God's purpose and God's good is always that you would be happy. There is a time for tears. There is a time for pain. There is a time for dependence on others and God where I'm not okay. Maybe he's trying to get you there. He's trying to say, would you for the first time stop being happy all the time and instead be real, be human, be dependent, be needy? I love what this says. It says that he works all things together for that good, for that purpose, for getting us to the end. What this makes me think of is my mother-in-law is my mother-in-law is, um, she's one of these people who can open a fridge and uh, put a meal together with the strangest mix of ingredients you could ever imagine. And when you're, when you're on the other side of the way that she prepares that meal, you know, she'll use like mustard and uh, horseradish and like frozen spinach and mangoes and soy sauce and then like some combo of chicken and kielbasa, and she'll throw it all together. And the question you don't want to ask is, so what's in here? You just, you just eat it, right? Like you just eat it and you go, this is fantastic. And it's so delicious and wonderful. That's the idea here. He, he, he works things for good. I don't, right? Like this is where theologically, I, I don't know that the scriptures necessarily point to God intends for every single thing that happens. He, he joyfully uh, brings that into your life because it's exactly what you need. No, there, there seems to be some tension there, at least in terms of how we experience it. Because if Jesus himself cried when his best friend died, that means that the simple answer isn't just reason your way and logic your way to, yeah, but if God wanted this to happen, then it must be the best thing available. Our experience of it is hurt and pain and confusion. 
And so it seems like um, that there is this, this tension that we experience in all of this, where even if it is something that, is, that does not please the heart of God, he can take it as an ingredient, and he can put it in our story. And he's the ultimate master chef who's able to say, I can use this. This isn't bigger than me. This doesn't, this doesn't cause me to wring my hand and say, what do I do with this hurt and pain in your life? My goodness, I went to the grave, suffered sin, hell, death, and the devil himself, and came out victorious over it. I'm telling you, I have what it takes to overcome this. Nothing thwarts my ultimate will and purpose and good. Nothing will win out at the end of the day. I think we can hold fast to that promise. This is the God who we turn to in moments of grief and loss. That's gritty though. That's not, hear me, that's not logic winning out. Watch the show this week where one of the characters, uh, the show actually is about unprocessed grief. Um, and the character was saying, my logic is not big enough for my pain. Your theology will never be big enough for your pain. You will not theologize your way out of pain and loss in your life. But the God who that theology moves you towards, an actual being and person in the universe, creator of all things, victorious over sin and death, he is bigger than your pain. And so don't theologize your way out of this. Relationship your way out of this with him. Pour it out on him. Express your pain. Express your frustration. Say, God, I can't carry this, but I believe that you can. So here I am again. You've got to carry it for me or else I have no hope. Then you start to sound like the psalmist. Then you start to sound like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who's going, Father, Father, is there any other way? He knows the deal. He's the most logical, reasonable person who's ever lived. He knows what's going to happen. He agreed to it in heaven before the foundation of the world. And he's going, Dad, is there any other way? Is there anything that I can do here? Father, I know not my will, but yours be done. But Father, you've got to be near me in this. You've got to provide for me in this. You've got to meet me on the other side of pain and death. It actually allows them to put one foot in front of the other, not away from suffering, but to walk toward it. Last thing here. We see endings as means of new beginnings. We actually give ourselves permission to say, there is something beyond hurt and pain and suffering and trauma. Right? Like we live in a moment, hear, hear my heart in this, we live in a moment where pain and suffering and trauma are taken very seriously. That's a be- I think that that's a beautiful cultural movement. I really do. I think it's why we're able to do the discipleship course that we're able to do. Why we're able to talk about these things and all of that. But the scriptures do not valorize pain and suffering. They do not say, you know what's great for a human being? is to always be in pain, suffering, grief, and loss. It says, yeah, blessed are those who mourn. But the mourning is not the place that, they, that Jesus intends to keep us, right? Like we have a God of hope. We have a God who has promised us a day coming when all pain, when all suffering, when all death will cease at last. That's the will of God. That's the ultimate good and purposes of God. And so he doesn't want us to just sit and stay in that stuff. He wants to move us toward hope, even if that hope is deeply mingled with our pain and loss. Even if that hope is deeply mingled with the need to, over time, process enormous hurt that we have experienced in our lives. He says, but would you have the faith and courage to choose hope? Because there is a day coming. There is a day coming when all things will be made new, when you will see what my will, what my will enforced, right? Enforced in the world, right? Like this is what we so desperately want. It's for God's will to be enforced in the world. By the way, the reason you don't want that right now is because, is because one, you might be destroyed if he enforces will. And everyone who's rejecting him would be destroyed if he enforced. But that day is coming. And what it looks like for him to enforce his will to the four corners of the earth is no pain, no tears, no death anymore. And so again, in the huge losses of our life, but also in the little mini losses of our lives, there is a general principle that death leads to life. This is the distinct Christian message 
the distinct Christian promise, the distinct Christian operating principle of the universe is that when we wait on the Lord, when we find him in our suffering, we can expect the biggest and the smallest deaths in our lives to suddenly burst through, that, that the soil of grief is often where the hope bursts through in unexpected, strange ways. That Jesus himself said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce anything. That's a, that's a principle that he's getting at here. I want to read you something. Um, Job. This is Job at the end of his life. Someday we'll do a series on Job. Job's just really cool. Um, this is the end of Job. Job ends with a happy ending, right? So we think. This is what it says. Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Do you know about Job? Job lost everything. Job lost his kids. Job lost his house. Job lost his wealth. Basically lost everything but his wife. And she was a lot uh, in the midst of his suffering. Um, and then he goes through all of these conversations with, that's not a, that, I, um, she was, she was. It's a biblical fact. I'm talking about biblical truth. I'm not making a general statement about wives. My wife's the best. Um, goes through all these conversations with a, a bunch of very stupid friends uh, who, who God says are stupid, um, so I can say it. Um, don't use that word, kids. Uh, oh, there's no kids in here. Um, oh, except Julie. Um, and then at the end, God shows up, and he's like, stand down, bro. Like, basically, he's like, where were you when I created the world? It says all this stuff. But this is how it ends. Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And after this, Job lived 140 years, pretty good, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died, an old man full of days. Is this a happy ending? Yeah, it's a happy ending, right? Like in general. It's not a fairy tale. And so while a lot is restored to Job, what isn't happening here is, is full restoration of everything he's lost. To put it as directly as I can, his kids are still in the grave. These are new kids. Right? This is a, this is a new life that he builds. Here's what a very good friend of mine says about this. He says, Job is choosing to re-enter the same world that he cursed and lamented earlier in the book. And it's the very world that God has shown him in his response. Right? Like God says, like, the world is wild. The world is chaotic. But what God says is, but it's not out of my control. I set the bounds of it. I know your experience of the world is chaotic, but it is utterly, this is the whole, uh, I'm really getting into some, uh, you, whatever. Um, he talks about this beast, and, and he's like, I can, put a, I can put a bit in that beast, and it's basically like, picture him like riding a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He's like, he's like, I can put a beast and direct that where it is. So he says, I know your experience of the world is chaotic, but I set the bounds of it. I'm in control. Job is choosing to re-enter the same world that he cursed and lamented earlier in the book that God has now shown him in, uh, in his response. The world, and now my friend is quoting uh, in Chronicles of Narnia, there's this beautiful part, Aslan is the Jesus figure, and there's this beautiful part where someone says about Aslan, like, man, he, he, sure, he sure puts us in some peril. There's a lot of adventure that he sends us on, and like, I don't know if Aslan is like particularly safe. And what does the person say? He's not safe, but he is good. The world, like Aslan, is good but not safe. This description is true not only of the creator, but also of the creation which reflects his character and work and purposes. The same dangers and threats that could all well happen again, uh, this is not resurrection or the life to come when all things have been made right, right? Like that, that story doesn't happen in heaven. And sin and death are banished. His children are still in their graves. There it is. Job very well may get sick again. He might suffer physically. Job is simply choosing to begin again rather than staying stuck in his trauma, fearful of the world that has hurt him and may hurt him again. That what faith does is say, yes, my experience of this world is so often chaotic and hurtful. And yet there is a good God who when I put one foot in front of, a, of the other and wait on him, in faithfulness to him, there is reason for hope, even in the darkest of nights. That same friend uh, suddenly lost his father this week, and this is what he wrote me. Find you friends like this. I'll end with this. 
See if I can get through this. Now as a freshly minted orphan at 42 years of age myself, he lost his mom earlier in life. I muse upon them again in the wake of my dad's death. He's talking about words that were spoken at his mom's funeral about the age to come. I am astonished and grateful that I still believe them, now more than ever. There is so much that takes place in our lives and in this world that can so easily cause us to despair, to become cynical or selfish or numb, to check out or lash out, to shut down or get permanently sidetracked. And the brutal interruptions that death inevitably, inevitably brings to our stories and to the stories of those we know and love are formidable challenges to faith and hope and love. But, but the waters of chaos cannot quench love. Neither can the floods of death drown it. Love is stronger than death. And the love that has created and sustained and forgiven and remade us in Christ Jesus our Lord is a love from which those who are in him can never be separated, not even by death, awful and horrible as it is. Follower of Jesus, that is your hope. That's why we end every one of our gatherings by going to this meal. It's because there was one who came in the chaos and the hurt and the pain of this world. He took it all upon himself, entered fully into our sin and grief, waited on the Father all the way to the grave such that we might have hope. So on the night before he was crucified, 